Well, friends, I suspect that many of us, maybe most of us, have had at least one experience in our life where things did not go the way that we wanted them to or expected them to. Maybe you uh, purchased a product or received a service that was not quite up to snuff, not quite what was promised. Maybe an employee at a business or an airline or insurance company (laughs) was rude to you or inappropriate. Maybe you got yet another call from someone wanting to extend your automobile's warranty. (laughs) You know how it goes, and you find yourself annoyed, maybe even angry, and you want to do something about it. Actually, you want someone else to do something about it. And so you ask, who is in charge around here? Because what you're really asking is, who has authority around here? Who can I put my trust in and trust that he or she has the authority and that they can and will do something about it? Well, our gospel lesson for today, I think, invites us to consider questions about authority. Who has authority? Why do they have authority? What are they doing with their authority? How are they exercising their authority and towards what ends? And what does any of this have to do with us, with our lives of discipleship and faith today? We begin, as always, in Scripture. And today, turning back to Matthew's Gospel, where we've been for several weeks. Today, turning ahead to the 21st chapter, and starting in verse 23. Listen to God's word for us this morning. Now, when Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven or was it of human origin? And... They argued with one another. If we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all regard John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Jesus continues, what do you think? He asked, a man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And the son answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and he went. The father went to the second son and said the same. And he answered, I will go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? And they said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, The tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, for you alone are our rock and our redeemer, and let all God's people say, amen. So we hear right up front in today's scripture lesson the question about authority. 
Where does authority come from? Why do we give some people authority in our lives? And the truth is the meaning, the definition of authority is somewhat complicated because there isn't a single meaning to authority. It's contextually defined, which to be clear doesn't mean that authority is claimed or given on a whim. It's just that we define or allocate authority based on a particular function in a particular person or place or in a particular system or structure. We all have the experience in our lives of being in authority over others, and we all have the experience in our lives of being subject to someone else's authority. A parent is an authority figure, a boss, a mentor, or teacher. There are multiple authority figures in our lives in government, civic society, in culture, and people that we assign authority based on who we understand them to be around a particular topic or issue. In fact, later today or throughout this week, I would encourage you to reflect on who are the authority figures in your life? Why do you give them that authority? Or how do they have that authority? And how do they use that authority in your life? And in a self-reflective way, for whom are you an authority figure? And how do you exercise that authority? How do you live that authority out towards what ends or goals? For example, I could be self-reflective for a moment and recognize that as the pastor at First Presbyterian Church of Fort Collins, I hold some authority. There are decisions that I am entrusted to make, people that I am entrusted to supervise. But at the same time, because we are a Presbyterian church, it means that we have a form of governance in which you, the congregation, elect elders, a board of elders, kind of a board of directors, so to speak, and they have authority over many aspects of the life of the church, including me. They are my boss in this environment. Um, and that's a particular way that we think about authority within the life of a Presbyterian structure. Now, we all know that pastors, in particular, can either use their authority or misuse their authority. It seems like there's a headline almost every week, isn't there, about how someone has abused his or her authority uh, in this role. And so I thought it might be helpful this morning to think about a couple of frameworks that we understand authority or a couple of lenses or models for how we think about authority. Here's one. You can think about authority as being either coercive or consensual. And those terms are somewhat self-explanatory. Coercive authority is authority by force or fear. It's authority that says, you better do what I ask you to do or there will be negative consequences for you. Uh, it's authority that is claimed, that is grasped and held onto. And not surprisingly, it's authority that cannot be challenged uh, or does not want to be challenged by people who hold that kind of authority. We might want to fight that authority uh, when it's misused or abused, but people are clamoring to hold on to it. It reminded me this week of the surprisingly now 40-year-old song, if you can believe it, by that rocker John Cougar Mellencamp, I fight authority, authority always wins. Remember that tune from the 1980s? Do we have a picture of John Cougar? Hey, we do, actually. Yeah. He looks like the kind of kid that fights authority. Of course, in his case, the authority is probably his dad telling him to get a haircut. But nevertheless, there is coercive authority. And then, thank you, there is consensual authority. 
authority by which we consent to give someone authority over us because of the office they hold, the education or experience that they have, um, or uh, just because they have been assigned to be an authority figure in a certain role, like uh, a boss at work or a civil servant. So we can think about authority as being either coercive or consensual, but I want to look at a different framework as well this morning. This one comes from the famous German sociologist Max Weber, who outlined authority in three different categories. The first is called traditional authority. That's authority that is inherited, or it's passed down. The fact that England still has a king and a queen, or some kind of a queen, that's traditional authority that's been passed down over time, and people accept it because of that. Now, that same kind of authority, traditional, can also be abused by people in power with the assumption that it's passed down and it's misused over other people. On this World Communion Sunday, for example, I think about my time in Northern Ireland, where I lived during the Civil War, called the Troubles locally, a war that was being fought because the majority population of Protestants was abusing their traditional authority and marginalizing or oppressing the minority population of Catholics. And so traditional authority can be used or abused. The second kind is what Weber calls legal or rational authority. And this is what we most commonly think about as a boss or uh, someone in uh, a government position. Uh, these are authority figures that have been assigned their authority because of their office or their position. Authority that's assigned rather than inherited. And the third category he calls charismatic authority, which is authority that is earned through uh, the life or the lifestyle of the person holding that authority. Uh, sometimes people by their very charisma, that's why he uses that term, uh, have authority over others because they want to follow someone with a particular vision or someone who has particular expertise uh, in a field might be charismatic because they've earned the authority of people to follow them. So authority can be inherited or assigned or earned and it can be exercised in a way that is either coercive or consensual and the fact is that anybody in any position of authority, including ourselves, is likely over time to be a mix of a variety of these things. We might have days when we play into part of this and days when we play into other aspects of it. And again, with those frameworks in mind, I would invite you this week to spend time reflecting on in what ways are you an authority figure over others and in what ways do you exercise that authority and who do you give authority to in your life to have authority over you? Well, all of this this morning brings us back to our text in Matthew chapter 21. And it's important in order to understand the text that we also look at the context, the wider story. Because you'll notice that I started this morning in verse 23 of chapter 21. Earlier in that chapter, at the beginning of 21, is Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The story that we read a version of every year on Palm Sunday. And in that triumphal entry, the crowd is assigning Jesus authority. They say, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is being granted in that moment the authority that would ordinarily be reserved for the emperor, for Caesar. And the religious leaders are nervous because they don't want to upset the Romans. 
Questions of authority come into play. And then immediately before the story that I read, Jesus comes into the temple and turns over the tables of the money changers. He upsets the traditions and the way of doing business in the local church. And so based on both of those experiences, and now Jesus coming back the next day and teaching again, now the leaders, the religious leaders, come to him and say, who do you think you are? Who gave you the authority to come in here and tell us about God and what faithful living looks like? I mean, after all, where did you earn your MDiv degree? What presbytery ordained you? How many years have you been working in ministry? And at what size church have you been before here? How impressive is your resume? How long your list of accomplishments? By what authority are you here today doing what you're doing? And Jesus doesn't answer them directly. I love that about Jesus. I suspect Jesus doesn't answer for two reasons. One, he wants them to figure out where his authority or admit where his authority comes from. And so he implies that it's the same authority that John had in baptizing. Of course, that gets them stuck because they don't want to admit that since they chose not to follow that. But they also don't want to upset the crowd who are big fans of John. On a deeper level, I suspect Jesus doesn't answer because he knows that they don't care about his answer. Their minds are made up. And so he is not going to try to engage in some false dialogue or debate with them when they have no interest in participating with integrity. And maybe that's a lesson in and of itself for us today about how we engage with others sometimes. And then Jesus tells a parable. He begins as I love, uh, in an earlier episode we looked at a couple of weeks ago, with the question, what do you think? He's inviting not only the religious leaders, not only his disciples, but all those who are gathered in the temple that day to reflect together. He is engaging them. This is a kind of consensual authority. What do you think? And then tells this parable. A father approaches two sons and asks if they'll work in the vineyard. The first says no, but then... Scripture says he has a change of mind or a change of heart. That verb in the Greek is metamelamai, and it can also be translated as repent, because we understand repentance as being a change of mind or heart, from going one way in our lives to being turned by God to go a different way in our lives. And so the son has a change of heart or a change of mind and says yes. The second son immediately agrees, I will go, but then never gets around to it. We don't know why. Maybe the day got away from him or he got busy with something else. But regardless, he signed up, but then didn't show up. Who, asked Jesus, did the will of the Father? And obviously they declared it was the first son. Yes, he was wrong in the beginning, but then he had that change of heart or mind and went on the right path. Jesus seizes the moment with the religious leaders. They had just convicted themselves, after all, because they were acting like the second son. They said all the right things. They believed all the right tenets. They had passed their ordination exams. But from Jesus' perspective, they had signed up, but they had not shown up to do the work. And Jesus continues and by the way, all those people that you're so quick to criticize and condemn, all those people that you toss out, they're going into the kingdom ahead of you, Jesus says. They may have said no at first, but then they had a change of heart, change of mind, that repentance that John preached and practiced. 
And now they have signed up and shown up. And to be fair, when we look at the religious leaders of that time, or honestly of our time, they had reason to be confused, maybe even offended. After all, from the outside looking in, it sure looked like they were following Jesus faithfully. Who practiced the law better than they did? Who participated in acts of piety more than they did? How could Jesus possibly accuse them of saying yes, but then not following through? It seems that they must have been missing something so fundamental that it was appropriate to compare them not to the first, but to the second son. And why? I think it's because they were missing a core teaching of Jesus. A core teaching of God made known to us in Jesus Christ, which is grace. The kind of grace that extends a wide and a welcome embrace and a love for all God's children. And because the religious leaders did not acknowledge John's or Jesus' authority, they are not following this core teaching. Let me tell you what I mean. This parable about the vineyard is perhaps a parable about the people of Israel, their community. And in this community, the father is asking the sons to work in the vineyard. It's the equivalent of asking people to do good work out among the community or among the nation. And that's where the chief priests had failed. Because after all, why did it take an outsider like John the Baptist to issue a kingdom invitation to marginalized people? John did it at first, and then Jesus himself continued this invitation, always hanging out with the wrong crowd, the authorities thought. And the very fact that Jesus hung out with sinners, counted against Jesus being on God's side, diminished his authority in the eyes of the religious leaders. But John and then Jesus do, in fact, reach out to the lost, the last, and the least. And they did so because until then, no one else was willing to reach out to them. If you ignored those folks, wrote them off as hopeless, and so not worth the temple's time, it was the equivalent of telling God that you would show up to do the work, but then not showing up to do the work. Because vineyard work is grace work. It's work of compassion and mercy. It's not about focusing on yourself or people like you. It's about people who are other than you, people that you might be tempted to overlook or even condemn. And the reason that John and Jesus found so many people who are hungry for that message of salvation by grace is because no one had been proclaiming that message. Unlike the religious leaders who may have been talking about the love of God, John and Jesus were actually living it out. They weren't just talking the talk, they were walking the walk. And because of that, their authority, which we could understand in a wide variety of ways, is at least in part a consensual and an earned authority because they live their lives with integrity. An integrity between what they say they're going to do and what they actually do. And that brings us to the question of our own response today. Jesus is asking us, what do you think, as he tells the parable this morning? Are we willing to recognize Jesus' authority, his role model life of grace and love, and then make decisions in our life to follow in that way? The truth, if we're honest, is that there are many days in our lives where we say we want to show up, but then it's hard. Isn't it? That's true of me. I wonder if it's true of you as well. There's a singer-songwriter from North Carolina that Miriam and I know. His name is David Lamott, and uh, he's kind of a, a Christian folk singer. He has a wonderful song uh, 
in which the lyrics say, Sing me a song about Jesus, but please don't sing about the poor. It's already been a long day, and I don't want to hear anymore. Sing me a song about Jesus that makes me feel happy inside. Sing me a song about forgiveness that'll make my lifestyle feel justified. Oh, sing me a song about Jesus. You see, there's days when I believe the right way, I say the right things, but I don't want to be asked to live any differently. I don't want to change. I don't want to ask hard questions of myself. I don't want to look at my checkbook or my calendar and get real honest about what my priorities are, who I spend time with, what media I consume, whose stories and whose voices I choose to listen to. In our Reformed tradition, we have a word for the discrepancy between what we say we believe, and what we actually do. That word is sin. <laughs> Missing the mark, we say. And as the Episcopal priest Barbara Brown Taylor reminds us, while sin is inevitable and forgivable, it should not be tolerable. We work towards reconciling with integrity what we say and what we actually do. The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said, Jesus does not want followers. Jesus wants followers, not just admirers. The world is full of people who say and believe and stand for the right things, but what God actually needs is people who will do the right things. And luckily for us, we have some wonderful examples here at First Presbyterian, examples that I've been witness to just in the last few days. Yesterday, a group from First Press partnered with some folks from Habitat for Humanity to work on a house here in Fort Collins, a place where uh, housing affordability is a huge issue and helping to build a home for a family that will be able to uh, live with in, uh, uh, integrity and independence in that home. Earlier this week, there was a group of our youth and older adults, an intergenerational group on Wednesday night, that met here during our immigration forum to, so, to sort coats, winter coats, and toiletries to provide for some of our most vulnerable high school students here in Pooter School District. Every week there's a group that sorts food for vulnerable students called McBackpacks. And today we're reminded as well of our global mission partners, as you'll have a chance to hear about after the service if you find the mission table out in Fellowship Hall. All of these together are examples of people putting feet to faith, and the transformation that it leashes is holy. That kind of transformation, though, doesn't just happen. People have to sign up and show up living a life of discipleship as we follow the authority of Jesus who demonstrates what it means. Of course, we all have days, and we'll still have days that we fail to follow through, and in humility and grace recognize that others stumble along the way as well. And that's where I hear a particular word of grace in the parable this morning. I hope you heard it too. That there is always time to change one's mind, change one's heart, from a no to a yes. I hear in this parable the surprising possibility of hope that someone who has refused to listen to God may yet change his or her mind. Hope that it's never too late to respond. Hope that one's past actions and current status do not determine one's future in the kingdom of God. Hope for the lost and the last and the least. And did you hear? There's also hope for those religious leaders as well. For the second son who said yes but then didn't show up. Jesus doesn't say that the least are going instead of you. Jesus says the least are going ahead of you. 
still leaving open the possibility, even for them, that they can change their hearts and minds and choose one day to follow. Every day in God's kingdom is present with possibility of receiving God's grace. Let me close this morning the way Jesus closed his ministry. I was struck as I studied this text about authority today by Jesus' final words to his disciples, at least according to Matthew, before he ascends into heaven. Do you remember those words from Matthew 28? Words that I say every time we baptize someone at this font? What does Jesus say at the very end? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember, I'm with you to the end of the age. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so now, friends, we know the answer to the question, who is in charge around here? Who has authority? Who can I put my trust in that they can and will do something about it? We can trust in the authority of Jesus, whose life was the very demonstration of the grace that he so generously offered we can confidently receive this grace, reliably extend this grace to others because we trust in the authority of the one who lived with integrity between what he said and what he did. And then we can choose. We can have a change of heart and of mind ourselves, turn our lives towards a faithful life and lifestyle that claims the authority of a beloved child of God, of a disciple or witness of God's grace and love for all. Author, Authority that's vested in who we are and in whose we are. All made possible when we're clear about who is in charge around here. Who has the whole world in his hands. Amen.